MSW Media. President Donald Trump is on trial. What can we learn from the trial? And what will happen next? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but she's still on the campaign trail, so let's get right to it and start bringing in our guests. But before I do, let me just take 20 seconds and thank our patrons who brought you this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Du, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Fromeyer, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, and an anonymous patron. You can become a patron too on our website, www.ontopicpodcast.com. All one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So let's bring in our first guest. Joe Lockhart. Joe's had a storied career, and you've seen him, I'm sure, on CNN with with me even at times. Uh, but really, what what Joe is best known for, and for and really brings to this conversation, is that he was the White House press secretary during the presidency of Bill Clinton, specifically during the period of time in which President Clinton was impeached and ultimately was acquitted by the Senate. So he was there when it happened. He was involved in a lot of the backroom conversations with the lawyers and the advisors and others. And he can help us understand not only that impeachment, but the impeachment of President Trump and what we can learn from that prior impeachment. So let's bring in Joe Lockhart. Thank you and welcome to the podcast, Joe. Glad to be here. We have heard uh, throughout this impeachment, the Clinton impeachment coming up constantly, Republicans repeatedly invoking it, for example, to justify uh, the way in which they've set up the trial. We hear commentators constantly comparing the Clinton impeachment to this one. It's somebody who lived through the Clinton impeachment, not the way you did, but at least was watching it intently as a, as a law student and then a little after as a young lawyer. Uh, I have to say, it, they seem like two very different situations to me. I, it, does it? Do you share that that view? Yeah, there's really no comparison. Um, you know, start with the offense. Uh, Clinton's was an unforgivable error in judgment that it really had no impact on on the country or our national security. Uh, but it's still unforgivable and. You know, I think he accepted responsibility that he put the country through um, uh, a really hard time uh, and apologized multiple times. With Donald Trump, who still contends that he's done nothing wrong, and as do his lawyers, this has to do with our national security and has to do with the sanctity of our elections. The two probably most important things that happen in the Oval Office, protecting our democracy and protecting our safety. Uh, so that's you start with that. Let's go to the Clinton rules that they said they they were they were nothing like uh, what Mitch McConnell uh, put you know put down on paper. The Clinton rules um, were negotiated by Tom Daschle and Trent Lott, and they got a hundred to nothing vote on it. The White House was unhappy with it. Um, the House managers were unhappy with it, which meant they got it right. 
they, they found a middle ground that every senator in the chamber uh, could could agree with. And the, the, the biggest difference, uh, you know, in, in the context of the rules was every witness that you could possibly want to hear from, some 65 witnesses, went before the grand jury and testified under oath extensively for hundreds of hours. No one has been before a grand jury. The main people with firsthand information are being blocked from testifying. Uh, from testifying, excuse me. Uh, so you cannot compare it there in terms of process either. Finally, there was a there was a seriousness about the Clinton impeachment, even if it was just about a personal mistake. Democrats, uh, one after another, went to the floor in both the House and the Senate and criticized the president openly, bitterly, and repeatedly uh, for you know for this failure in basic human judgment. That didn't mean they voted to remove him, but they said they basically acknowledged that the president had created this problem. Now we have House Republicans who say the president did nothing wrong and Senate Republicans who not only are going to agree that he did nothing wrong, uh, but will will likely vote to keep evidence out of the trial that's directly relevant to the trial uh, shows a lack of seriousness on their part. The last thing I'll say, and I, I referenced this a minute ago, President Clinton took responsibility for this. He apologized multiple times um, in, in a in very heartful way. Donald Trump doubles down on attacking people, saying he did nothing wrong. And there's just no, I find no, uh, no common point of interest to compare the two presidencies, except for they worked out of the same office. Yeah, I have to say, I can't imagine two different, very different presidencies myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting because President Clinton paid, in many ways, a high price uh, for that uh, failing. Uh, in you know, frankly, you know, the 2000 election, in many ways, was a referendum on you know that aspect of his presidency. The Republicans used the term, you know, bringing honor, you know, bringing dignity and honor and so forth back to the White House. They wanted to restore that. Um, and that was, I thought, a, a sort of um, an, uh, sort of them tipping their cap to, or you know, subtly saying that they wanted to, you know, not have any sort of indignity that uh, President Clinton, you know, referring to to what had happened with President Clinton. Uh, and in addition to that, as you pointed out, I mean, there were a number of Democratic senators, most, most notably Joe Lieberman, but others who who spoke in detail about how the, how concerning they thought his conduct was. Um, we don't, you know, I don't, there's none of that here. And one thing I wonder is whether or not President Trump is going to learn anything from this. In other words, is there, what I think he may, the lesson he may draw from this is that there's no consequences, uh, for any of, uh, you know, for any potential misdeeds. And he really has the authority to do what he wants. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's remember that the, the, um, now iconic, uh, or pivotal phone call, that the president made to President Zelensky happened the day after the the Mueller report came out. Now, the Mueller report did not um, exonerate the president. It did not fully exonerate him on collusion. It just said that they couldn't put the evidence together, and that, and that in, was in large part to the fact that witnesses wouldn't cooperate and that they were not available to get at the encrypted messages. Uh, so that doesn't tell me that there was no collusion. They just couldn't prove it. But the obstruction stuff was... was um, uh, very straightforward. The president obstructed justice, and as a special counsel, I can't indict him. So Congress, you take it. Um, 
But, you know, through the auspices of Bill Barr and a bunch of other dishonest people, they were able to um, uh, rhetorically work them their way out of any responsibility there. And the president was emboldened the very next day. The very next day after Bob Mueller's, you know, uh, you know, candidly poor performance on the Hill, he pushed a scheme that we now know from the Lev Parnas tape began in 2018, not, you know, in the, not uh, when Marie Ivanovich, the ambassador to Ukraine, was removed. This had been in the works for now over a year um, to do all of the things that the president wanted, which was get the Ukrainian government to investigate Joe Biden and to get the Ukrainian government to take the rap for what Russia did in the 2016 election. Um, you know, it's so he will be emboldened by this. There is no doubt. And again, it's a, you know, it's a critical point. You know, you, you can put up any of the white house defenses and tear it apart pretty quickly, but let me tear apart their, I think their headline which is if you look at the New York Times, you know, the Sunday edition of the New York Times, it says White House lawyers say they're trying to steal the election. Um, the the whole idea that this is trying to nullify 2016 is belied by the facts, which is Nancy Pelosi and leading Democrats held off, did not want to impeach the president, wanted to do this at the ballot box. It was only when Ukraine, the Ukraine issue came out and it became clear that he was trying to manipulate the next election, that they felt they had no other choice to impeach him. So the the, the idea that this is somehow a political witch hunt um, is not supported by the facts. And in fact, the facts make the opposite argument that, in fact, the Democrats may have waited too long and, you know, may have uh, allowed too much damage to be done. But, you know, try telling that to a Republican in the Senate. Yeah, I have to say one one important difference between this impeachment and the Clinton impeachment is that in Trump's case, there's so much misconduct one has to choose from in terms of potential articles of impeachment that really, you know, I was one of those people advocating to take a, you know, have a simple story and just, you know, keep the articles lean. But there are many people arguing for all sorts of other offenses. For example, the obstruction of justice uh, yeah. episodes that you mentioned before being added, that was that was very different than the case of someone like President Clinton, who was a very popular president and, you know, was somebody who certainly was criticized, but was not widely engaged to be uh, engaging in illegal acts. Yeah, no, I, again, I, I, I was, I think, on the other side of that debate. I thought they should have at least put in the obstruction of justice out of Mueller, uh, only because you could then say, here's a crime. Um, abuse of power, uh, you know, is criminal. It may not violate a statute that's written down, you know, and, you know, that you can cite, you know, the, the way lawyers do. Uh, but that's, you know, it's uh, th- that, that was a close call. And I don't think that is going to have a, a, a large impact. You know, I think um, it's, it's interesting if you look at this, you know, if you just look at the popularity of the president, President Clinton, um, the day the Star Report was released. And remember, it was a brutal year of leak after leak after leak about because Star's strategy was to get the president to resign. He, you know, he he could count heads in the Senate. He knew what a steep hill it was to have the president removed. And he and his uh, deputies pursued a strategy to continually leak material that would force, basically force Democrats on the hill to go down until the president it was time to leave. So, you know, I'll have Richard Nixon. Uh, that, you know, that obviously didn't work. 
But the day the star report was released, the president was at 63% job approval because people thought he was doing a good job. And the day he was impeached in 1998 in December, he got to 73% job approval, the highest of his presidency. Just happened to be the day I Gallup um, researched this and tracks it once a week, and they've been doing it since the 1960s. Um, so the the strategy that the president employed, which was I'm going to focus on my job, worked really well. Uh, the economy was strong. That had a lot to do with it. But if you look at Trump, um, he has pursued a, the opposite strategy, which is I'm a victim. Uh, I'm going to be self-indulgent and self-pitying, and I'm going to attack uh, my opponents. He, he, too, has a reasonably strong economy, not as strong as he says, um, but he's stuck at 43 percent job approval. He is 51 percent of the country, according to a Fox poll. So let's not say it's the mainstream liberal media trying to um, distort the numbers, want him uh, removed from office. Um, that's a pretty daunting number, you know, in an election year. Um, so I think it says something about the difference in the climates, about the difference in the strategies, but also the differences in, in the presidents, you know, as, you know, as leaders and, you know, as, as men and, you know, what they what kind of character they have. Well, you know, one thing you mentioned a moment ago was the strategy that uh, President Clinton and the in the his administration had. And one one uh, line of punditry that I saw before we got to the Senate trial that I thought seemed flawed to me. I'm curious about your perspective was comparing the like sort of the PR and and media strategy of the Clinton White House and saying that Trump and his team are going to use what what Clinton did as a model uh, for how they were going to handle uh, the strategy of defending the impeachment. It, it seems to me what what Trump is doing is very different than what the Clinton team did. And I'm curious what your thought is, what that is. You know, I, this all got caught up and sometimes the media gets a little too focused on labels and cliches and things. So this a lot of this punditry was around, you know, will Trump have a war room? You know, because Clinton had a war room. Now, I was the White House press secretary and I never saw the war room. Maybe there were, maybe one existed. And my guess is there was I knew there were extra people who were brought in and they were working someplace and maybe they called it the war room. But I yeah, one would think if it was an integral part of the president's defense, I would have seen it. So and uh, the White House was, you know, saying we're not going to have a war room. And the press was saying, why aren't they? And they they eventually did. But the strategies were fundamentally different. Uh, you cannot compare the strategies. Bill Clinton, um, well, I guess it was two or three days after the story broke, stood in the Roosevelt room said something about the um, uh, the allegations and, and whether they were true or false, and then didn't speak about them again until the grand jury. Um, now, after the grand jury um, and, and the, 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 the truth came out, he spoke about it occasionally, but only in the context of taking responsibility and, and, and you know, saying he was sorry. Um, and, you know, that, that, you know, you never quite know on that politically how it will react. Sometimes you just roll the dice and you do what uh, the president thinks is the right thing. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, Trump, you know, he's even though the Mueller report uh, kind of morphed into the Ukraine scandal, his uh, strategy never changed. It was all a witch hunt. It was all a hoax. You know, again, he could 
as he said, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, the guy could be dead, and he'd say it's a hook. He's, the guy's alive. You know, no one shot him, even even if it was on video. Um, so that's you know that 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 is a big difference. I'll tell you one other big difference, and it's something to watch for uh, this week when the defense goes out. Um, the president had some very able lawyers. President Clinton had some very able lawyers. He had a number of lawyers from Williams and Connolly, which is a very good law firm. David Kendall, Nicole Seligman. They represented the president, and they made no bones about it. They were on the floor of the Senate representing the president. But the other lawyers, led by um, Chuck Ruff, did not represent the president. They represented the presidency. Um, and, you know, I think people on the outside may say, oh, that's not true. Everybody's a homer in the White House. And it is true. And I'll give you uh, an anecdote that will, will show you how true it is. The night before Chuck Ruff was giving his um, – opening statement, which was a, just a ph- phenomenal piece of legal work, something I haven't seen since Adam Schiff, you know, last week, um, called me up to his office and um, had a yellow legal pad in his hand. And he said, I'm going to show this to you. Uh, not many people have seen it, uh, but I'm going to show it to you under one condition. I, I said, you know what? And he said, you cannot talk to the president about it. And he shoved it across and I read it and it was his opening statement, you know, written out in longhand. And, you know, it was amazing. And I, and I think he wanted he wanted one non-lawyer to see it um, just, you know, for a different set of eyes. And I was the, you know, one of the political people. And I pushed it back and I said, this is amazing. And I said, you know, why don't you know, why don't you want the president? Why won't why won't you let the president see this? And, you know, he's and I'm I'm shorthanding here. But he said, basically, he's not my client. My client is this building and my client is this office. I don't need to, you know. I don't need to share it with, you know, David Kendall's client. Um, and I, you know, I, I think he was, a, obviously he was there as a supporter of the president, but he was defending the presidency there. You know, if you look at what you saw Saturday with the white house lawyers, there wasn't a single lawyer there defending the presidency. They're all part of the corrupt law firm led by uh, Bill Barr and Rudy Giuliani that's defending Donald Trump. And that, you know, in some ways, that's the biggest difference uh, between uh, then and now, that the institutions have failed us. The Senate has failed us. The House Republicans have failed us by not taking this seriously. Um, and, you know, you wonder why people don't take the government seriously. You wonder why people don't show up elected day. Because now their elected officials aren't taking it seriously. And that, that has a that has a, a contagious and, you know, a, a toxic effect on our, our politics and our, our, you know, ultimately our democracy. Yeah, I have to say one of the other corrosive things that um, has really eaten away at our democracy, in my view, is sort of this this attack on truth uh, by uh, by the Trump, uh, Trump and his allies, the Trump team, and this promotion of a sort of alternative set of reality, a set of facts and an alternative reality. Obviously, that was something that, you know, there was some talk of that during the George W. Bush presidency, but it's really at another level. And it, it really, I think it's very striking here uh, because during the, for example, the Clinton impeachment, everyone basically agreed as to what the facts were. There was no the, the reason there was not a lot of debate about witnesses is because everyone knew what happened, and the president acknowledged essentially what happened. And it was really a question of whether or not it was an impeachable offense, and that was something that Starr kind of 
hijacked in a way because because he was independent counsel is a different statute at the time. He basically just said, you know, he labeled these counts and presented them to the House as, as if the, 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 the impeach, impeachability of these things was settled. Whereas now the question here is so much deeper than that. We don't really know what happened. And they're trying to – it seemed to me his lawyers at times were pushing an alternative view of reality, uh, which was a, a scary thing to me. Yeah, I mean this picks up on a little bit of you think about Chuck Ruff um, writing an opening statement and refusing to show it to the president. And trust me, the president wanted to see it. He was, he was working his sources, and um, Chuck was holding it close to his vest. Um, it, 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 there, there is such a contrast. I, you know, I have some level of sympathy for uh, Trump's lawyers on the floor of the Senate. Again, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know who's a great lawyer or who's not a great lawyer. And there were a couple of them who I thought made reasonable cases, not based on the truth, but they presented themselves well. And there were a couple of them that I thought were embarrassing. Uh, If I was a lawyer, I'd be embarrassed. But all of them were operating with the same uh, restriction, which was it was clear Trump said to them, start and finish every sentence with I did nothing wrong. Well, again, I didn't go to law school, but I, I, I for a long time made a living making trying to persuade people. Uh, about a point of view. And if you start every sentence with the sun rose in the West today, now let me tell you what else I think. No one's going to listen. You have to, you have to, if you, if there is a weakness in your argument, you have to acknowledge it, you know, usually up front. Uh, and they, they just didn't do it. But they did something, you know, we all know the president's a liar. You know, I, I don't know why people have such a hard time using that word. It's not, you know, my, my, my kids, you know, go, have gone through a couple of phases where everything they say is a lie because they're testing you. Trump's a liar. He doesn't tell the truth. That's, you call people don't tell the truth a liar. Um, but uh, and the fact that his lawyers would perpetrate lies on the floor of the Senate is not surprising uh, because they're they're They are speaking for the president. What is more dangerous, though, is, you know, I just thought that the worst performance from the president's uh, defense team was Jay Sekulow, who I, I think is out of his league here. Um, but he did something that people are going to look back on uh, and is going to become much more significant with time when we get out of this. He took, you know, in the House hearings, it was clear from everybody who testified about the crowd strike Ukrainian debunked conspiracy theory about Ukraine being behind uh, the uh, interference in an election, not Russia. And, you know, Dr. Hill was the most eloquent, which she said, uh, you know, she basically said at one point, I want to warn everyone in this room. When you say that you're using Russian talking points, you are helping spread and validate Russian disinformation. And Jay Sekulow went on the floor of the Senate in defense of the president and did that. Now, he knew full well that this is this is this is Russian propaganda and Russian disinformation designed to undermine not only the Ukraine but undermine the United States of America, um, and you know it's a it is an act to me that you know borders on treasonous that if you go in and you start arguing an an enemy's um, uh, point of view that hurts your country and your allies. You know, I don't know what else to call it. Um, and I think with time, um, you know, I think Sekulow will go down in history as one of those people who put his own interest, like the president's, ahead of the country's. You know, it's interesting. I, 
I, I I couldn't agree more. Although it's it's interesting, I've always had a sort of um, low expectations for Mr. Sekolo. He struck me as somebody who's a self promoter. I guess I mean not he's not somebody I view as a real serious uh, lawyer. Mr. Cipollone is a serious lawyer, and I, I will say that in many ways, from my different perspective, I'm more disappointed in him. Because from the day he started signing those letters saying that the impeachment... Yeah. I mean, the, the, the eight-page letter was, and again, I, I'm not a lawyer, but it was either written by, a, it was either written by the president or, who some, who, or, or a four-year-old who decided he was going to go to law school, but not by a real lawyer. Yeah. I mean, it's not a legal document at all. It can't be understood as a legal no. document. Um, it's just sort of like the you know impeachment is unconstitutional, and it was all. I mean, it was just a, it was a diatribe, and Cipollone started signing his letters to that stuff, and he's been on the floor of the Senate talking as if um, you know he he's really you know he's the he talks as if he's the author of that letter at times, and you know if I was if there was a, a Donald Trump uh, sort of figure had hired me, um, I I could not. Uh, bring myself to be doing that sort of thing on the floor of the Senate. And I would think that most serious lawyers could not. So, you know, that's the sort of thing. And I, you know, a lot of my listeners were asking, is there going to be any consequences for lying on the floor of the Senate? I don't think so. You know, there's not, it's not, you know, I don't think bar associations are going to get in the middle of that and they'll probably view it as not a real legal proceeding in the way that it is in front of a court, but it is, um, it is disturbing to me to see that. And I think that's there's a sort of disinformation element. It seemed to me, Joe, almost like they were trying to provide an excuse for Republicans. Republicans are essentially they have a result and they're looking for an excuse to reach that result. And so they're just trying to provide a bunch of different possible excuses for senators to choose from. Well, if you if you look at the um, defenses of the president and even the communications and documents, the few documents we have seen it, you know, I, I learned, uh, you know, every time you watch a lawyer give a great presentation, you learn two or three uh, Latin phrases. So for last week, it was post hoc, uh, you know, I, you know, post hoc rationalizations, the entire American policy towards Ukraine and Russia was a post hoc uh, um, real uh, rationalization of I got to get some dirt on Joe Biden, um, and you know I look at I look at Cipollone, and again I don't know um, what kind of lawyer he is. I don't know what his reputation was, but I know what it is now, and it's the same reputation of everybody in year three at the White House, which is the people with principles and the people who would stand up to Trump are gone. They've been gone for a year and a half, two years. Um, these are the people who look at this and say, um, you know, I know he's a clear and present danger to the country, but I'm going to make something good about it for me. When this is over, I'm going to have a bunch of Republican donors hire me as a lawyer. When this is over, I'm going to get a Fox News contract. When this gets over, I'm going to be a hero with 40% of the uh, country, and I'm going to walk into the Trump Hotel, and people are going to cheer for me. Uh, it's pathetic. It really is pathetic. And these are these are all the wrong reasons to take up public service, all the wrong reasons to go into the White House and to do this every day for seven days, because it's a grueling job and it takes its toll. But to do it for your own personal advancement and to model your professional life on Donald Trump. Um, you know, again, all these people will do fine. You look at, you know, Sarah Sanders, who's 
got a book coming out. She gets paid $50,000 every time she goes to give a speech. Uh, and she may be the next governor of Arkansas, you know, I mean, you know, maybe this works. Um, but you know, I, 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 I think these people are going to have a tough time explaining to their grandkids how it all went down. At a certain point, you have to wonder, what are you doing it all for? In other words, I, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, very successful lawyers who are very afraid to say anything about anything political, but certainly uh, to criticize President Trump because he's uh, making all sorts of appointments and, you know, it may impact their their ability to get one of those or potentially to impact their ability to get clients or whatever. And I, at the end of the day, I mean, are you, what what is the point of all this if you're not doing things that you can feel good about at the end of the day or feel, you know, satisfied with what you've done. Yeah. And that's why I think the most powerful part of the 21 hours of the uh, house managers was late Thursday night when Adam Schiff was finishing his wrap up. And he talked about the idea that you can't trust president Trump. You can't trust him to not put himself before the country and I kept thinking about that, you know, for like, you know, I was up for a couple hours after it and it kept, and I realized he wasn't talking just about Trump. He was talking to the senators in the room and he was talking to the American public, which is if you want this kind of leadership, the people who, you know, someone like Trump who calls everybody names and lashes out and lies and, you know, makes it about himself, you know, this is what you get. Um, but he was also saying, to, to the senators, you have a choice here to put your country first or put yourself first. And then to the American people of if you want to keep voting for Donald Trump, this is going to keep happening because, you know, the best leaders are the ones who do what President Clinton did, even with the, you know, the terrible mistake he made, which was to just say, I'm going to go do my job. I, you know, I mean, if there's any, you know, self-indulgence or self-pitying happening, it's going to happen in private. Um, I am not going to put this on you. Um, What Trump has done is put it on the American people. What Republican senators appear to be likely to do is put it on the American people, say, not my problem. And, you know, uh, the American people have a job. You know, I think I think Schiff implicitly challenged America to be better. Uh, to be about something bigger than themselves, you know, that's a pretty powerful argument if people get it. And if some one of the Democratic candidates can find a way to articulate and bring that to life, because that's what beats Donald Trump, um, not, you know, going after him for this lie or that lie. I think that's that is that's exactly right. It's very profound. And you know, I think is a good way of of summing this up. I, I appreciate you joining us, Joe. I've I. And learned a lot from the from the discussion. You bring a perspective I don't think a lot of other people do to this. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was uh, good talking to you. So now let's bring in our next guest, Elliot Williams. You know, Elliot's currently a principal at the Rabin Group's Government Affairs Practice Group. And you probably know him best as a CNN legal analyst or maybe, uh, you know, during his roles in the Obama administration because he was uh, the deputy assistant attorney general for legislative affairs at the Justice Department. He was one of those people shepherding through Senate confirmations, uh, for example, for Sally Yates and Loretta Lynch. Uh, but re- but I think what's really relevant here and the experience he brings to the table um, is he actually used to work as Judiciary Counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee for now Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. 
So he spent uh, quite a bit of time. He's a practicing lawyer, uh, but he spent you know quite a bit of time in the Senate. He understands how the Senate works. Uh, and as a lawyer, he I think it brings a, a unique perspective as someone who can help us look at the legal side of this, but also understand how the Senate works and how senators may view this impeachment. So let's bring in Elliot Williams. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot. Thank you so much for joining us. Always. Well, I, I, I've never been, so I shouldn't say always a pleasure, but it's always <laughs> a pleasure to be in your company, Renato. Thank you very much. Well, it's great having you. And I will tell you, we picked quite a night to do this. We ah. just had breaking news that John Bolton's book um, alleges that uh, President Trump told him specifically that he, that he wanted to to hold up the aid to Ukraine um, until and unless Ukraine helped with investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens. And it also you know, makes a number of other claims that Pompeo said that the um, that the uh, allegations against the ambassador that they were trying to get fired uh, were were false. Uh, it talks about a conversation he had with uh, Bill Barr. Uh, in which he said that Giuliani was sort of putting himself out there as the attorney general and secretary of state uh, and raising concerns about Giuliani's role. And the interesting, I think one to me very interesting thing is, apparently he sent this the manuscript to this to the White House weeks ago. So they know what's in the, what mm-hmm. John Bolton's going to say. Point, yeah. yeah, I mean, and so look, you know, one thing, of course, that'll be interesting is to see what, they contradict what the, what what in the book contradicts what uh, Trump's lawyers have been saying. But I also think, you know, it makes it harder for them to argue that senators should know what Bolton's going to have to say, given that they already know themselves. Yeah. So I think big picture, are you surprised or should any of us be surprised by anything we're finding out? And, and you know, and I feel like over time, this happened with Watergate. To some extent, it happened uh, with the Clinton matter. But I think with every major political, if you want to call it scandal, more comes out over time when the biographies start getting and the memoirs start getting written um, and information leaks out. So years from now, I, I think this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the behind the scenes information that will ultimately be disclosed about the president's intent in this matter. So if this were a trial, um, which you know, you've done many, I've done many, uh, we'd call this corroboration of what we already knew, which is that the president ordered uh, you know, the withholding of funds from Ukraine. And it was part of a months-long scheme to you know, fire an ambassador, whatever. We don't need to get into all the facts here. But all this is doing is, is supporting what we already knew. And so I would you know, if uh, perhaps I could come on and, and show the outrage that we all feel about this conduct, but really we all kind of knew this. Now, the question is, what do we and what does the public do about it? And frankly, what the president's greatest skill since being since taking office has been convincing the public that he is under siege, that the media and Democrats in Congress and his you know, deep state Republican opponents are out to get him. And people are just going to believe that this is just more fodder for his his folks are going to believe this is just more fodder for that, that really all this is doing is compounding the the, 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 the baseless attacks against the president of the United States. And so it's look, it's it's heartbreaking that we've become so numb to the behavior and the misconduct from the president. But I don't think this changes anything uh, in the end. 
Um, but again, I think it just confirms what you knew, what I knew, what certainly more than a majority of the public knows. And frankly, the president's attorneys know. They they have to know that the president's behavior was improper, but they're just casting it as completely proper uh, as, I guess, as their defense. Yeah, I have to say, I, I, I agree with what you said. You know, from my perspective, it's been clear for quite some time that we what Trump did, there's no real question about it. I wrote a column in Politico, I don't know, three months, two, three months ago now, saying the president has no defense. I mean, I didn't really see a defense on the merits here. I haven't seen much of one during the impeachment trial from his team. And yet, you know, what I think makes this an interesting development is that right now the debate is being centered on should we call witnesses or not? And, you know, there's this old adage, you were a, a, a clerk just as I was for a federal judge. There's this old, you know, saying that that I used to hear from judges and clerks, which is, does it right? In other words, can you, can you, can you uh, come up with some justification that you put in writing that is sufficiently plausible that gets you from point A to point B that meets where mm-hmm. you're trying to go? And I'm not, I think... I'm, I'm, we're getting to the point where I'm not sure it's possible for them to come up with an excuse that sounds reasonable or good as to why they're voting that way. But maybe it doesn't matter. Well, you're thinking of this uh, like a lawyer. You're thinking of this like a prosecutor. You're thinking of this like there is a substantive case to be made here uh, that can't be superseded by a political one. And this process is, I hate to say it, um, being someone who lives in a world of facts and law, fancy that like you do. But um, the political process is, is probably going to win out here. And I think in a political process, you can just convince the audience, convince the public that um, the underlying thing, the underlying, the whole enterprise coming after you is flawed and tainted. And that's what the president has done and is doing. And so, yes, there is, let's say, I, I mean, I, well, okay, the the President's base is about 28% of the voting public, right? The people who, the unshakable base the president will never lose, right? Those folks necessarily believe that we're all out to get the president. The world is out to get the president, right? There's maybe persuadable people, uh, you know, a, a few more percentage points above that. But I just, my, maybe that maybe you're just catching me on a re- really cynical day. But <laughs> now I just don't see how... Again, this is supporting the legal case, but I don't think that matters anymore. Look, there's think of all of the acts of misconduct that we've seen by the president that, you know, um, did you were you, I don't and forgive me for that. Did you sign the former federal prosecutor's letter um, in the moment? I helped oh, write oh, it. Duh. Yeah. OK. Was... <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I just couldn't remember. Um, but. It, look, right there, the president could have been charged with at least four, perhaps five federal offenses, um, you know, five different acts of misconduct. But the public just, you know, lots of people didn't care. And just think of all of the acts over time that we've just become desensitized to. If we lived in a I wrote a piece for CNN.com that the only question that matters in the 2020 election is, does the law matter? Does it matter when someone breaks the law because of the fact that now we are now becoming dead, not we, but the public is just becoming dead to the fact that you can break the law or violate the Constitution or engage in acts of misconduct and still get away with it? And the question is, will someone who has engaged in misconduct be held accountable? Um, And the cynical 
answer is that seems like the answer is no. It seems that you can just get away with it now. And I think the bar is now set incredibly low for presidential misconduct from here on out. And, you know, look, you're a student of history, too. Governments evolve, positions of the presidency has evolved over time, and maybe this is just where we're going, and maybe we'll eventually become Italy or something where the president is just constantly engaging in misconduct and and changing every two years. I don't know, but um, again, the question is, does law matter? And I'm not convinced that it does anymore. I, I'm gonna. I, that is a subject I have a lot of. Th- that's dark. That's dark. That's a dark. I will tell you. I, that's a subject I have a lot of thoughts on, and sort of this whole subject of whether the law matters, and you know how what it means to you know what are people getting away with it in this in the age of Trump in a way that they haven't before. But I want to. I'm going to steer us to this this impeachment for today because I'll have to have you on uh, back again to discuss that because I think that's a, that's huge. We could spend two yeah. hours or ten hours discussing that. And it's funny that was that was just a digression. I forgot that I'd written that piece. Yeah, but um, but no, but literally that's and CNN. You can look it up, folks, and look it up. It basically, if you just Google what's the one question, Elliot Williams, what's the one question that matters in 2020? And I said, really, it do, does law matter? Do the rules matter? And do holding people? But whatever, we'll talk about that another day. It's a fun question. It is. Well, I will tell. I mean, I, I've managed to find one person who's perhaps more cynical than I am about this process. I, my <laughs> listeners will know I'm a pretty, I'm a realist. I like, I prefer calling it that uh, in general All about right, this. Fair. But I will say that I, you know, regarding this, I what I have seen when I looked at the trial is Republicans trying to come up with some sort of what's the line that we're going to use to vote to acquit him? What's the line we're going to use to vote down witnesses? I just feel like this is making it harder from a political perspective to come up with something that when they go on the morning shows, uh, they can they can move their lips and they won't get you know derided by journalists or by certain amount of persuadable moderates. But maybe that doesn't matter anymore. I, I will say that I, one thing that I feel very strongly about, uh, Elliot, and I think you're right, is that we shouldn't be thinking of this. And this is an issue that I think you know is the case with a lot of our listeners because we got a lot of questions from all of you about this. You know, and I and you and I, Elliot, went through these, and a lot of people are focusing on legalisms and legal issues. Mm-hmm. And the reality of the fact is, this isn't a legal process. I mean, one thing that I saw from, um, you know, from a lot of uh, pundits, and I talked a little bit about this in our Patreon newsletter, is you know, there's this discussion like, oh, Adam Schiff just gave the best legal performance or the best performance by a lawyer I've ever seen. You know, that to me was not a legal uh, performance no. at all. It was a political theater, political speech. I, what it means to be a, a litigator in court, I try cases all the time, is very different. The strategy involved in doing that, it's just a different exercise than what this is. Yeah. And, you know, and both sides have when I, I don't want to call it two sides, like it's yeah. A versus B versus evil or whatever. But, you know, there's the president and there's the people um, trying the yeah, president the in the court of impeachment. Mm-hmm. Managers, right. Or, you know, or the, the public that is on that side have sort of fallen into a trap a little bit of not the managers, but the, more the public of, of talking about this process as if it were a legal process. It started from the beginning um, during the whistleblower during a lot of the, the hubbub over the whistleblower, where it was the president has a right to face his accuser, right? Um, that is a right, as you know very well, that comes from the Sixth Amendment um, that is extended to criminal defendants. Um, the president has a right to a jury trial or whatever, whatever. A lot of these these fundamental rights that you work to protect both as a prosecutor or defense attorney simply don't apply to an impeachment. Now, the Senate can choose to apply those rights 
uh, you know, if the Senate were to craft rules for the impeachment that says, you know, the accused or the president or the, the elected official doesn't have to just be a president, um, the high government official you know, will have the same rights extended by the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution or, you know, is free from search and seizure under the you know Fourth Amendment or whatever. Um, uh, Fifth Amendment. Um, the uh, fourth. I'm mixing up my amendment. Sorry. Um, the uh, but none of those none of those rights apply. Pretty much all that applies is what's laid out in the Constitution and sort of filled in by. Hamilton, uh, in a few of the Federalist Papers, 65 being the big one, but there's a few others that sort of talk about, well, what is impeachment? It's not a criminal trial. And so also when, you know, you even hear talk about jurors, um, you know, the jury is, is uh, you know, the senators are jurors and they should act. Well, they're not jurors. They, and th- the clearest case of that is the fact that by a vote of a majority vote of the Senate, they can overturn any ruling by the judge. Of, the, of the chief of the chief justice. Right. So that's literally as if you were in a criminal trial, right? The judge said, you know, I'm sorry, uh, objection overruled. And the jurors said, hey, man, sorry, bro. Seven of us agreed. Uh, seven of the 12 of us agreed. You're just wrong. And that, that was the rule. And that so it's not that's one of many rules that really they are the the impeachment court. That's a good way to call them or the triers of impeachment. But they're really not. It's not a. A, a, a criminal legal process in the sense that we think of it. Um, and so pretty much every question, again, yeah, a lot of folks um, on your Twitter ask this. Um, yeah, we Jason Jaffe was asking about, you know, the principles of double jeopardy prevented the Senate from retrying the impeachment. You know, there's no double jeopardy in this context. It's not a criminal case. So if, you yeah. know, if the if the House wants to keep sending articles over, the Senate can uh, have at it, it right. with those articles. But it's a political process then, you know, if the public, the public could certainly get fatigued by constant articles of impeachment coming out of the House. But, um, but no, um, um, but, and, but to be clear, the right to confront one, and I want, I don't want to poo poo these rights, the right to confront one's accuser or the right to a, a jury trial or double jeopardy, not, you know, not being tried twice for the same offense. These are all wonderful, beautiful rights that we ought to cherish and enshrine in law and protect, um, you know, and they've been since the founding of the, of the country. They just don't apply to presidents or federal judges or high government officials who are being impeached. That's just, that's just a fact of law. Well, and um, well, I will say, I will just jump in and say, Elliot, you know, there, it may be that those rights animate senators when they're setting the rules. In other words, another difference sure. between jurors and senators is that senators decide the rules. I mean, if jurors in my trials got to decide the rules of how the trial would go, they, the, the trials would last like two hours long and everyone would go home. Right. Uh, and so, you know, they are, they're setting the rules, you know, maybe these, these principles you're talking about and these rights that are enshrined in the constitution of criminal cases might have in influence their their decision making but that's really all that well, that it does yeah and, and i guess it comes down to the question of what is more important protecting the rights of a president or let's not even call it president let's say an uh, an, an individual facing impeachment because remember it's not just about the president there are, i think a few dozen um individuals mm-hmm. uh, federal judges, judges have been impeached mm-hmm. over yeah, federal judges have been impeached throughout history. Secretary of War was impeached at one point for all kinds of crazy stuff, too, like showing up to work drunk. You know, it's not just these lofty high crimes of, um, uh, you know, treason and breaches of oaths and stuff like that. No, literally showing up to work drunk could get you impeached in the old days. So, um, but what what is 
what's more important or what is most important. And it may not be the right to confront accused and so on. Well, look, you're somebody who spent some time working in the Senate, uh, in the staff and the Judiciary Committee. You know, what I what one thing I find interesting is I, you know, I had worked briefly as an intern for uh, Paul Wellstone back in the day. Oh, yeah, it was a great guy. But, you know, back then there's a lot of collegiality between Republicans and Democrats and mutual admiration and, you know, discussions back and forth. And it seemed like each individual senator had a lot of authority and power back then. That's changed a lot. Uh, And, you know, it seems to me like there's very much a political divide here. And it it really Democrats don't really seem to have, you know, when you hear them when they're coming and talking, whether it's on television or or elsewhere, they they don't seem to be giving much hope to uh, Senate Democrats that they're going to be able to, you know, get many votes, even to have witnesses at this trial. I'm curious what your take is on on this sharp divide. and, And is that sort of coming from something broader than politics or maybe a difference in how the Senate operates? Oh, that's an interesting question. So, you know, I think that's another topic for its own podcast, (laughs) right? Which is, you know, how did we get here politically? Um, And I think the big point is that the Senate is increasingly becoming like the House of Representatives, which is a place where up or down the majority rules. And um, and I don't and I think it's not productive to get into the game of, well, did McConnell start it? with Garland or did Harry Reid start it with the filibuster or whatever, you know, it, it predates any of that, but increasingly over time, the place is just getting more polarized. Now I was there about a decade ago and it was, it was, it was worse to some extent than it was in the 1990s or 1980s or seventies or more diverse, obviously. But, um, but, but it certainly wasn't what it is now. And in fact, you know, to be candid, the senator's office, so I work for Senator Schumer on the Judiciary Committee, the the Senate office, I think definitely the Republican office we worked with the most or the best was Lindsey Graham's office a decade ago, because, you know, at the time Schumer was, you know, he wasn't majority leader or minority leader yet. Um, He was working a lot on immigration and criminal justice issues and so on. And Graham's office was always an office. One, they were staffed well. It was uh, just, you know, he just had smart, good folks on his staff. And he was someone certainly on on the 2007 immigration bill. We worked very closely with them every day. Um, And it was just an office that was universally respected across both sides. I don't know what's going on. Um, what happened to Mr. Graham in South Carolina? Now, obviously, he's facing a tough race. Um, uh, you know, he's up now, and um, but it's I, I don't know. And to some extent, it's Donald Trump having a greater grip on any political party than we've than we've on his political party than any president we've seen in our lifetimes. Like certainly Obama didn't have this kind of hold on Democrats. Bush didn't have this kind of hold on Republicans where there's just a lockstep refusal. But I don't know, but it's but it is troubling. And in fact, when I worked there in the Senate, we almost kind of looked down on the House of Representatives as this place where you know, it was this far more partisan and far crazier and there were no rules and everything was crazy. But the Senate's sort of becoming that now. And, you know, there are, like I said, it's it's the subject of another podcast because I don't know if it's, if it's just money right now is making everyone so crazy about, I'm just gonna throw out a few theories. One, it's money and they just have to raise far more money now than they did before. And they always have to be making donors happy in a way that they probably didn't 50 years ago. Um, uh, the, uh, Trump, I don't know if, if it's that. Um, it's also, 
the reddening and bluening, for lack of a better term, <laughs> bluing, blue, uh, I, 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 blowing, I don't know, but the, um, the, of the various districts or places in the United States. And so, for instance, um, Connecticut, so let, let's analogize to the House of Representatives, right? Connecticut, or not even Connecticut, I don't think above Pennsylvania there is a single Republican member of the House of Representatives. There might be one. Um, or, but it's not in the way that it was 50 years ago where red and blue represented the Northeastern United States. It's a similar effect in the Southeast. Um, there's usually one African American district like in Mississippi or, you know, a few in Louisiana or whatever, and that's the democratic district, but the rest of them are deep red. So what that's saying is that the states themselves are becoming more polarized and partisan. And by extension, the senators that represent them might be becoming more polarized and partisan, or maybe, I mean, another thing is, uh, we are talking on a podcast right now, which is something that people can subscribe to. The simple fact is there is a ton of media that people can just choose to listen to, right? And you can just choose to tune out anybody you disagree with at this point. And I think that's making for a more polarized electorate generally. Um, but for instance, like just the last point on this, in the even as late as 2000, when I was in journalism school, where I also went uh, with law school, uh, at 6.30 p.m. on any given night, some staggering, like 80% of the households in the country were, listen, were watching the nightly news, one of the three networks. It's some staggering percentage. Maybe it's not 80, but it's overwhelming, where everybody was tuned into the same news sources, um, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS. Now, literally, you can only get BuzzFeed or The Daily Caller or Facebook or Twitter, and that's where people are getting their news. And to some extent, that's whipping up the people they're voting for. And I think they're just wanting more red meat out of their elected officials. So I don't know what it is, but it's infected the Senate, and it and it's not good for the because. And last one, I know I've gone on for a minute, but the um, you know the whole point of the Senate. This goes back to Thomas Jefferson was to be the place. Um, where cooler heads would prevail. If you know, I mentioned Federalist 65 a little bit earlier, but in Federalist Papers number 65, they talk about the fact that the Senate is the trier of removal because they're the most level-headed people in America, and that's just shifted. That model just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I I I think that the effects of this this you know uh, diversification of of news sources and the fact that we now can sort uh, into the types of news sources that we that we are um, we, you know places that we're getting our news from I think is just profound I think the impacts of that are profound yeah. and and uh, in my view if I was going to put my money on something that's had kind of a corrosive impact on our on our politics that would be it I guess let's just turn back to this the question of you know sort of the political versus legal here, you know, it's been interesting to see the role of Chief Justice Roberts. Of course, mm. one 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 of the things that he did that actually you know made some impact was him chiding both sides to have some decorum. And we learned later that was because Susan Collins passed a note up to him complaining about I think Jerry Nadler, um, you know, making a statement about um, you know about hiding the truth or something like that. You know, it's interesting to me because you know, of course, he also I will say he. 
you know, called the Senate the greatest deliberative body on earth. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to be operating as it once is it once did. But there's a lot of there's been a lot of um, discussion of Chief Justice Roberts, uh, you know, having some big role here. You know, we had some listeners asking, you know, where where would the Chief Justice stand on witness intimidation on Tweed, and you know, why haven't the Democrats been slipping Roberts notes? you know, about, you know, lies from the defense lawyers and so on. What's your take on some of that? Well, so here's the point, and this gets back to the very first topic we talked about here. What is an impeachment? Is it a trial? Is it something else? And the chief, this is another misconception about how impeachment ought to work or how it has worked in the past, which is that the chief justice isn't a judge in the sense that we think he's not the the trier here. The, the Senate is. He's not the finder of fact and law um, as as a judge would be in, in, in different types of trials. And so, for instance, I think if, if you analogize or compare him to Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, from, from some years ago, um, the goal of the Chief Justice, his one goal is to not become the story. His one goal is to not become uh, the party at the center of a political maelstrom um, because he picked one side over another. And, um, you know, the Susan Collins example is an, ex- is an excellent case of it because you can make, you could, you could make an argument that Jay Sekulow was just as problematic at, his behavior was just as problematic as Jerry Nadler's was, but a note had come from Susan Collins, the great moral voice in the Senate. And he sort of felt he had to do it. But, um, you know, again, getting back to it, this is the point we made earlier, the senators can overrule anything the chief justice does. And I think that would be profoundly embarrassing for the chief justice to issue a ruling that would anger or inflame one of the political sides and have them vote to overturn him. Well, if only the Republicans could, but uh, to overturn him. So I, the goal is just to stay out of it and keep, and keep his powder dry and really act as a ceremonial figure. Again, back to Rehnquist, you know, the most notable fact of William Rehnquist's time in the Clinton impeachment was that he adorned his robe to look like a character from a Gilbert and Sullivan musical that had stuck with him, Yolant. It's like, and not even like Pirates of Penzance or HMS Pinafore, this random ass uh, Gilbert and Sullivan musical that nobody's ever seen, but the judge there had four stripes on his robe. And so that's, that's, that's what you remember about William Rehnquist. No ruling, no fact, no whatever. He made one ruling on a motion and it comes full circle because something we were talking about earlier. Um, it was was it Harkin? Yeah, Tom, Tom Harkin, Harkin asked the question. Mm-hmm. Right, are senators jurors? And he said, no, they're actually. I guess what was it? Finders of or something? Yeah, impeachment or some yeah. you know wishy washy thing. So no, yeah, I mean people want Chief Justice Roberts to be. Both sides want him to be their ally in this, and he's really just uh, you know a ceremonial figure keeping the trains running and trying to get back to his day job. Yeah, I would say, I would put it differently. I think the Democrats want it to be their ally. Republicans are happy with where things are at. They want to get this over Fair. with. They're not looking for anything yeah. to get shaken up. That's what, The reason that they don't want witnesses is just not because that's going to really change votes either, uh, but they just don't want anything that could potentially be a wild card that can move the needle. They'd rather, they just they got the votes. Let's get this thing over with. Uh, if you got the votes, yeah. call the votes, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think, you know, the same thing with Bolton. Um, you know, we no one knows what his testimony will well, be. Well, the White I House think. knows because they, they got oh, the book. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> we enough, don't fair know. Enough. But I think but everybody wants to graft their feelings onto onto John Bolton, like the cipher into which, uh, you know, but um, 
Yeah, but nobody knows uh, except the White House, but they're not telling us. Well, I, I'm curious. You've been watching all this coverage. Sometimes you've been on. Uh, we, I, you know, I've seen you on CNN, Elliot. What, what are you? What do you think is the sort of uh, the mi- big misconception or misunderstanding that's out there about impeachment thus far? Well, oh, it, well, the big. <laughs> I, I, you know, I hesitate to think there's one. I mean, again, it's number one that it ought to operate like a traditional court. That it ought to that the rules apply in a court. Um, you and I are here talking about legal issues that um, were this just and right would matter, but they just don't, and it's and it's largely a political process. Um, you know, the big thing I think a big point that has troubled me uh, a lot is this whole. And again, we t- I think I touched on it a little bit earlier is. Uh, overturning the results of an election. You hear the president's supporters say what the House managers and Nancy Pelosi and everybody want to do is overturn the result of a duly elected president of the United States. Now, that is kind of the point of impeachment, right? It's the the point that the, the, found, the framers laid out was that sometimes an elected, a duly elected or duly sworn or appointed official will behave in a manner that is inconsistent with his or her oath of office and must be removed, right? But saying that this is this is a political, that's just wrong as a matter of law. The problem is, you know, that doesn't matter. Again, this, and I think that's the 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 great to some extent the great tragedy in all this that the a lot of things that we associate with the rule of law, a lot of the rights that we associate or, or not even, you know, the rights extended to defendants, but also um, rules that ought to govern the process simply don't apply here. And it's just really a question of, can you convince the public that it's right or wrong? And so this whole overturn the results of an election point, I think is going to, it actually resonates with many people because people are saying, wait a second, they want to relitigate 2016 mm-hmm. and 2020 is just, it's just 10 months from right. now. So let's, let's just put, kick, forget impeachment. Let's just decide this at the ballot box with lightsabers. Like, you know, like Count Dooku would say, like, you know, with our, like, let's decide this, like, like Jedi or whatever. Um, that was a random, but I, whatever. Hey, I'm a Star Wars that. fan. So I got, I got the reference. I think maybe 5% of our listeners will. Well, I, I love you 5%. But no, there's a point where Dooku says there's one way to solve this problem with lightsabers, right? Well, there's one way to solve this problem with the vote. And I think, you know, that's unfortunate because there is a system for holding someone accountable, and it's just not going to hold that person accountable. It's clear he's not going to be removed from office. He's impeached. And in a little personal anecdote, like I remember when I, you know, you were a nerd as a kid too. I know this. I, you know, my, um, I had this book, like this encyclopedia of presidents when I was a kid. And I remember to this day, I remember the entry for Andrew Johnson. And it just says, you know, Andrew Johnson, 18, whatever, 65 to whatever year he came out. And it just said in italics under it, impeached. Right. And I just, that's, I remember, that was the one fact I knew about Andrew Johnson going through life until I got to high school or whatever. Um, and it's, yeah, it's on his record. It's, it's, he was impeached. But that's, I think, where it ends for Donald Trump. Um, and to some extent, that's unfortunate because we've confused this political and constitutional uh, matter. So I think that's the big problem in all this. 
Yeah, well, it's unfortunately that has to be where it ends for us because my studio time is running out. But I will say, <laughs> I will say that you have given me uh, topics and fodder for about five other podcasts with you and me. I think we're gonna we're gonna have to have you on again. So I really appreciate that. I, and I appreciate it too. And, the, and one more sentence in this thirty seconds we have left: You don't need to have a crime for someone to be impeached. But whatever, we can talk about that another day. But I'm sure someone's talked about it on your impeachment. But whatever. Thanks, Elliot. Real pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is a beautiful thing. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 